Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the podcast. Talking about uh, hail and farewell. Um, and hang on, I need to go into Reddit here on my app. Hope you're having an excellent um, week or day or whatever you're having at the moment currently. Um, who is this Father Tom fellow was my discussion prompt for chapter 9.1. Um, below is a link about Father Tom, as well as his brother Peter. The brothers were among the most influential academics in Ireland. Um, last quarter of the 19th century and the first quarter of the 20th century. So they were smart fellows. And this is an example of why George is so annoying. Extremely annoying says Swim. He just has to be the smartest person in the room, and he's not. Techrific says he's metacognitive deficient. Some sort of upscale Dunning-Kruger effect, perhaps. Metacognitive deficient. He's got no self-awareness, in other words. Um, yeah, he, it's ironic sometimes, the things he say. He'll talk about, you know, someone... Uh, you know, boring their audience with endless babble. And he'll say that in amongst just absolutely endless babble. Let us keep reading <clears throat> and kick along. Hey, by the way, Tech Swim, nice to see you back again. Sorry, the last few days have been a bit disjointed with the podcast, but we're back on track now. Here we go. Um, It's... Wait. Oh, here we go. One mustn't pay attention, any attention to criticism. The best way is to go on doing what one has to do. In these words, Father Tom seemed to reveal himself a little, and we talked about the crossroad dances. He said he would speak on the subject, and he did, astonishing the editor of The Freeman. And when I next ran across Father Tom, he told me he had just come back from his holiday in Donegal, where he had attended a gathering of young people. The young girls came with their mothers and went home with them after the dance. These words were spoken with a certain fat unction, a certain gross moral satisfaction which did not seem like Father Tom, and I was much inclined to tell him that to dance under the eye of a priest and be taken home by one's mother must seem a somewhat tried amusement to a healthy country girl, unless indeed the Irish people experience little passion in their courtships or their marriages. These opinions were, however, not vented, and we walked on side by side until the silence became painful, and to interrupt it, Father Tom asked if I had seen Peter lately. Peter, I answered. What Peter? For I had completely forgotten him. Father Tom answered, my brother, and I said, no, I haven't seen him this while. And we walked on. I, listening to Tom with half my mind, the other half meditating on the difference between the two brothers, Whereas Peter seemed to me to be sunk in the order, Father Tom seemed to have struck out and saved himself. It was possible to imagine Peter reading the exercises of St. Ignatius, and by their help quelling all original speculation regarding the value of life and death. For he that often reads of the beatific faces in heaven, and the flames that lick up the entrails of the damned without ever consuming them, is not troubled with doubt that perhaps, after all, the flower in the grass, the cloud in the sky, and his own beating heart may be parcel of divinity. 
Tom must have studied these exercises too, but it would seem that they had influenced Peter more deeply, and thinking of Peter again, it seemed to me that to them might be fairly attributed the dryness and the angularity of mind that I observed in him. And how was it that these exercises passed so lightly over Tom's mind? For it was difficult to think. He had ever been tempted by pantheism. He has had his temptations, like all of us, but pantheism was not one of them, and on thinking the matter out, the conclusion was forced upon me that he escaped from the influences of the exercises by throwing himself into all manners and kinds of work. He is the busiest man in Ireland, on every board, pushing the wheel of education and industry, the editor of a review, the author of innumerable textbooks, a friend to those who need a friend, finding this time somehow for everybody and everything, and himself full of good humour and kindness, outspoken and impetuous. A keen intellect, a ready and incisive speaker, a politician at heart, who, if he had been one actually, would have led his own party and not been led by it. One has to think for a while to discover some trace of the discipline of the order in him. If he were a secular priest, he would not bow so elaborately, perhaps, nor wear so enigmatic a smile in his eyes. Father Tom is a little conscious of his intellectual superiority, I think. He is looked upon as a mystery by many people, and perhaps is a little eccentric. Intelligence and moral courage are eccentricities in the Irish character, and one would not look for them in the Jesuit priest. It seems to me that I understand him, but one may understand without being able to interpret. And to write Father Tom's apology would require the genius of Robert Browning. He could write his own apology, and if he set himself to the task, he would produce a book much more interesting than Newman's. But Father Tom would not care to write about himself unless he wrote quite sincerely, and it would be necessary to tell the waverings that preceded his decision to become a Jesuit. He must have known that by joining the order he risked losing his personality, the chief business of the order being a blot out, to blot out personality. Now, how was this problem solved by Father Tom? Did the order present such an irresistible attraction to his imagination that he resolved to risk himself in the order? Or did he know himself to be so strong that he would be able to survive the discipline to which he would have to submit? If he wrote his apology, he would have to tell us whether he does things because he likes to do things efficiently, because he thinks it's right they should be done. This chapter should be especially interesting and the one in which Father Tom would speculate on the relation of his soul to his intelligence. He values his intelligence, indeed, I think he prides himself on it. As a priest he would have to place his soul above his intelligence, and he would do this very skillfully, but one self is a dangerous subject for a priest to write about, and perhaps Father Tom avoids the subject foreseeing the several difficulties that would confront him before he had gone very far. Once his pen was set going, however, he would not abandon his work, and any misunderstanding which might arise out of his apology would revert to the cooperative movement, of which he is so able to advocate. All the same, I reflected it's a pity that so delightful an intelligence should be wasted on agriculture, and I thought how I might ensnare Father Tom's literary instincts. I've been thinking, Father Tom said, 
in our next walk about the book, you told me you once wished to write the psychology of religion, a more interesting subject I cannot imagine, or one more suited to your genius, and I am full of hope that you will write that book. Father Tom muttered a little more to himself, and I think I heard him say that there was more important work to be done in Ireland. What work? Father Tom did not seem to like being questioned, and when I pressed him for an answer, he spoke of the regeneration of the countryside. Mere agriculture, that anybody can do, but this book would be yourself, and Ireland is without ideas and literary ideas. We would prefer your book to agriculture, and you must write it, and I wonder how it is that you have never written a book. You are full of literary interests. Then very coquettishly, Father Tom admitted that he had once written a novel. A novel? You must let me see it. And I stared at him nervously, frightened lest he might refuse. I don't think it would interest you. Oh, but it would. I was afraid to say how much it would interest me. More, it seemed to me that any novel by Balzac and or Turgenev, for it would reveal Father Tom to me, however inadequate the words might be, I should be able to see the man behind them, and I pleaded for the book, all the way to college in Stevens Green. I have to go upstairs to my bedroom to fetch it. I'll wait. And I waited in the hall, saying to myself, something will prevent him from giving it to me. He may stop to think on the stairs, or overtake by a sudden scruple, or he may go to Father Delaney's room to ask his advice. Father Delaney may say perhaps it would be better not to lend him the book. If that happens, he will have to obey his superior. So do my thoughts wander till the, he appeared on the staircase with the book in his hand, a repellent-looking book bound in red boards, which I grasped eagerly and stopped under a lamp to examine. The print seemed as uninviting as tin tacks. But a book cannot be read under a street lamp and in the rain, so I slipped the volume into my overcoat and hurried home. A.E., I have discovered a novel by a well-known Irishman, a friend of yours. Have I read it? I don't think so. You'd have spoken about it to me if you had. You'll never guess the most unlikely man in Ireland. The most unlikely man in Ireland to have read a novel? A.E. answered. Then it must be Plunkett. You're near it. Anderson? No. Father Tom? I nodded, very proud of myself at having found out something about Father Tom that A.E. did not know. If Father Tom has written a novel, I think I shall be able to read The Man Behind the Words. Just what I said to myself as I came along the green, and I watched A.E. reading it. With a cast-iron style like that, a man has nothing to fear from the prying eyes, and he handed a book back to me. But let us, I replied, discover the story that he has to tell. A.E. looked through some pages and said, There seems to be an insurrection going on somewhere. The soldiers have arrived and arrived in our surrounding a castle in the moonlight. A.E. always finds something to say about a book, even if it be in cast iron. And I loved him better than before when he said Father Tom loves Ireland. That Father Tom's love of Ireland should have penetrated the cast iron style mitigated my disappointment. I wonder why he lent me the book. Possibly to prevent you worrying him any more to write the psychology of religion. Every time I go for a bicycle ride with him or a walk, I am at him about that book, but it's no use. A cloud appeared in A.E.'s face. He suspects Father Tom, I said to myself, of angling for my soul, and to ease A.E., I told him that I often spent my evenings talking to Father Tom in his bedroom on literary subjects, and that I had arranged with him for the publication of several short stories in the New Ireland Review. These stories that will be translated into Irish by Tego Donoghue and Father Tom will probably get the book accepted as a textbook by the Intermediate Board of Education. But do you think that it was to write these stories that you came from England? Well, for what other purpose do you think I came? 
and to what better purpose can a man's energy be devoted? Devoted. And his talents than for resuscitation of his country's language. What did you think I came for? I hoped that you would do in Ireland what Voltaire did in France, that whenever Walsh or Lodge said something stupid in the papers, you would just reply to them in some sharp cutting letter, showing them up in the most ridiculous light, terrifying them into silence. I'm afraid you were mistaken if you thought I came to Ireland on any enterprise so trivial. I came to give back to the Ireland her language. But what use will her language be to Ireland if she is not granted the right to think? The filing of theological fetters will be a task for the next generation. Oh, more, 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 he muttered in his chimney corner. And then, seeing him disappointed at the temptation to tread on his corns, overcame me. Of what avail, I asked, are our ideas if they are expressed in a worn-out language? Moreover, it is not ideas that we are seeking. An idea is so impersonable. It's yours today and the whole world's tomorrow. We would isolate Ireland from what you call ideas, from all European influence. We believe that art will arise in Ireland if we segregate Ireland, and the language will enable us to do that. However fast the language movement might progress, A.E. answered, Ireland will not be an Irish-speaking country for the next 50 or 60 years, and a 100 years will have to pass before literature will begin in Ireland. Besides, you can't have literature without ideas. The only time Ireland had a literature was when she had no ideas in the 8th and 9th century. Oh, more, more, more. The bell rang and he wondered who the visitor might be. Walter Osborne, John Eglinton, Hughes, which of our friends, Edward, by all that's holy, we were surprised and pleased to see him. For Edward lives outside my ring of friends. They meet him in the streets and he is glad to stand and talk with them at the curb. If the wind be not blowing too sharply, thinking therefore that he had for a wonder yielded to a desire to go out to talk to somebody, my welcome was affectionate, but, alas, he had come to speak to me on some Gaelic League business and an opera that somebody had written and hoped he was not interrupting our conversation. I cried, good heaven, and handed him the cigar box, and we began to talk about Yeats. And when we could find nothing more to say about either his mistakes or his genius, A.E. spoke to us about Plunkett's ideas, and when these were exhausted, Hyde's mistakes were discussed with passion by Edward and me. We wanted a forward policy. Yet the Bowers, I said, had only pressed forward after their first victories. I beg your pardon, Edward suddenly interrupted. But have either of you heard the news? The Bowers seem to have brought it off this time, and he told us that Lord Methian and 1,500 troops had been captured by the Bowers. But what you say can't be true, Edward. You are joking. No, I'm not. It's all in the evening papers. And you come here to talk Gaelic League business, forgetful of the greatest event that has happened since Thermopylae. If the Bowers should win after all, it will be the same in the end, only prolonging the war. His words shocked me, and immediately the conviction overpowered me that nothing would be the same again, and I was lifted suddenly out of my ordinary senses. The walls about me seemed to recede, and myself to be transported ineffably above a dim plain, rolling on and on, till it mingled with the sky. Encampment was there in the hallowed light, on, on one face, stern and strong, yet gentle, was taken by me for the face of the eternal good, upreared after combat with the eternal evil. What I saw was a symbol of a guiding providence in the world. There is one, there is one, I exclaimed, and it is about me and in me. And all the night long I heard as the dear deaf hear, and answered as the dumb answer, a night of fierce exultations and prolonged joys, murmuring through the darkness like a river. 
For how can it be otherwise, I cried, starting up in bed. Yet I believed this many a year, that all was blind chance, and I fell back and lay like one consumed by a secret fire. Life seemed to have no more forgiving, and I cried out, It is terrible to feel things so violently. It were better to pass through life quietly like Edward, and on these words, or soon after, I must have dropped away into sleep. And that, friends, is the end of chapter 9. Thank you for listening. I'll see you tomorrow.